Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole. And on this episode, man, this is like, this is like family. This is like growing up. This is like deep, deep connection. I'm talking about artist, DJ, producer, label titan, Mr. DJ Drama. What's going on, man? Colby, the legend himself. What's up, man? So what's crazy about DJ Drama, we're different ages but we grew up in the same neighborhood and I didn't, I did not know. I, I mean, I obviously knew we were both from Philadelphia and we are both from Germantown and Germantown section of Philadelphia. So G town stand up, happy hollow Pulaski town, They're all that good stuff. Haines street, all the, all that back in the day stuff. Yeah. But, but you actually grew up. I lived on Wayne Avenue and then you lived on Pulaski, right? Yep. So we literally grew up around the corner from each other, about 10 years difference. Did you go to Kelly School, Kelly Elementary? I went to Kelly for like a, um, what did I go to Kelly for? I went for like a, like a magnet program. So I I went to another school, but I definitely took classes at Kelly for sure. Yeah. So like that was my elementary school. Then I went to Pickett. Then I found out that you went to Central. I didn't even, I know you went to Central. I went to Masterman and then I went to Central. Right. Oh, boy. You see that, ladies and gentlemen, he got the bougie public school education in Philly, although Northeast wasn't bad either. I went to Northeast, but Northeast and Central has had or has, I don't know, of a a rivalry in football on Thanksgiving. But um, man, so like it's really interesting your journey because you're like a East Coast kid. Yep. And. You know, talk a little bit about your journey into hip hop just growing up in Philly. We had such a vibrant hip hop scene. So like all that energy that was popping off, especially around the time when you got out of high school, man, that was the golden era right there. That was just a lot happening in the culture. So talk a little bit about your introduction to hip hop. Yeah. So my earliest like memory of like hip hop overall is like I remember, you know, this is when my father lived in germantown actually uh he lived on rubicam street and i remember just being outside maybe like four five six or something and a bunch of the older kids had some of the younger kids and they were like yo say this say the roof the roof the roof is on fire we don't need no water let it burn let it burn and i later found out that you know it was uh let the motherfucker burn but you know for all intents and purposes they left motherfucker out for us and you know like I am literally a kid of the hip hop generation. I'm I'll be uh 45 in April. Hip hop is turning 50. So, you know, like Run DMC was like, you know, larger than life for me. The reasons why I wanted a pair of Adidas, you know what I'm saying, as a kid, um, you know, growing up, obviously a big part of my early years of of hip-hop were uh listening to you on radioactive you know and i always tell when i tell this story i tell people all the time like you know the way we have youtube and hulu and you know an abundance of hip-hop documentaries and things like you know you can watch hip-hop for a year straight of content if you want like in my younger younger years we didn't have that so you know it was either you know catch rap city yo mtv raps when it was on or you know wait up friday night and listen to radioactive and listen to colby cole and dj ran and that's how i was like you know we get a lot of my new music and how i fell in love with ice cube and you know krs and you know in abundance my first cd that i ever got was um 
Please Hammer Don't Hurt Them. That was, that was, I got it for Christmas, uh, right when CDs first came out. And then, you know, when I got to high school, I was introduced to a, a couple of groups. One was uh, this group called The Goats, who was a big group in Philly. Another, they were on uh, Rough House? Were they on Rough House? They were on Rough House. Yeah, they I remember were, that. I do remember The Goats. Wow. Yeah, the Goats were around. Yep. This group called The Square Roots, who we now know as The Roots. Yep. As well as uh, Bahamadia, who actually was my next door neighbor to my father, who lived in West Philly down the bottom, thirty uh, third and Haverford. Yeah, and you know they were all very in- influential. And I was a kid in high school that was like, you know, running around going to see Onyx at uh, some club at two a.m. in the morning. Uh, you know, I stayed at the Trocadero, whether it was for like a. Uh, whoever was coming to town, I saw Ice Cube there. I saw like, you know, I was there for the Roots signing release party. You know, I used to go to DMC battles to to watch, you know, shout to DJ Ghetto, who, you know, befriended me very early on in, in my DJ career. And, and you know, for those who don't know, like Philly has always had a very vibrant DJ scene or, you know, as New York was known for his MCs, Philly was known for his DJ. So, you yeah. know, whether it was DJ Miz or it was Cash Money or Ran or Kev or, or, or Jazzy Jeff, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like Philly had a very vibrant uh, DJ culture. And ironic enough, it was a fictional character for me. It was DJ GQ, who was played by Omar Epson Juice. It mm-hmm. actually really, really inspired me to be like, oh, yeah, I want to, you know, damn, that's something I want to do, you know, but I, I spent many, many nights, like, again, listening to to you guys, listening to Jay Ski um, uh, on Sunday nights, you know, and just like, and I, I was, uh, I was befriended by the Roots and like each member on their own befriended me in their own way. So, you know, I, I had a early on, like I, I met Quest Amir at, the uh the premiere of past the popcorn video you know we became cool everyone was a little older than me like bahamadia is older than me the roots are a, a, a generation older than me um then you know i got cool with malik b i got cool with Tariq trotter who's black thought i got cool with dice raw you know at various times and when i started making mixtapes you know around that time the uh dj doop made this tape called 95 live which was like the first time like someone really had like artists like freestyling on their mixtapes, like exclusive freestyles. So I made my own version and I called it Illadelf. And I had like uh, Malik freestyling, rest in peace. I had Black Thought. I had Dice Raw. I had, um, remember the group 100X? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Come on. I, you know, I was playing all them guys, man. Yeah, 100X <laughs> like would be on the tape. And, you know, I just made my own Philly version. And, you know, I pretty much like was just kind of kind of running around Philly as a as a teenager, just like in the mix with the with the Philly scene. And, you know, I was I had a job on South Street at this uh, Inferno, uh, which was like a like a, a piercing store. But they opened up another side and they would sell like uh, graffiti caps and like hip hop gear and mixtapes. And I got a job on South Street. And so like every weekend I was down on South Street and you know, just like just moving and grooving. Well, it's funny you say that because I, when I was a teenager, I had a job on South Street at at a bar, which wow. I had no business working in uh, this Irish bar named O'Neill's. And I remember the um, the uh, the chef was on drugs, 
And so, like, the drug dealer would come in while this dude is cooking people's food, and he would give him his drugs, and he would take his drugs. But the energy of South Street at that time was just bananas. Like, you always felt the music from the cars and the the energy from the people. And um, uh, what's interesting, too, about Amir, he used to be a caller to Radioactive. So he would just, he was a kid, and he would just call into the show, and we would just talk about hip-hop. So, like, it's just Philly is like a big city. But it's really like a small town the way like everybody kind of connects. Like, I mean, I remember Ram Squad, you know, I mean, Richard Allen Projects, right? And in, in that era and that energy that they had, Tommy Hill. And and um, there's an article out, too. I just uh, an, an art, a, uh, I think it was for Philly Voice or some magazine that Philly wrote about these great Philly songs from back in the day. And one of them was The Flow from the Fat Cat Click. Remember that? Where all the rappers got together? Yep, I remember that. So you had all this energy and then you go to college and you decide to leave and you go to Atlanta. So talk a little bit about why you decided to go to the South, because the South at that point was not the I mean, they had outcasts and they were they were definitely bubbling. And that was like the first big energy from the South. But from a hip hop perspective, the South was wide open. So so what was that move like for you and why did you decide to go to Clark? You know, I always thought I was going to wind up in New York. My dream, like then was to go to NYU film school and live in Brooklyn and, you know, live in a brownstone and, you know, walk the streets where Smith and Wesson and Black Moon and, you know, MOP would stomp around in their Tim boots and what have you. Um, I took a trip to Atlanta with my father uh, when I was 16 and it was, uh, he had a conference, but we stumbled upon this, um, this, uh, festival called the national black arts festival and you know it was just like as as a 16 year old going to atlanta around that time uh feeling the energy in the city it was very colorful you know it was um, that was freaknik time too right it was i I never really the only freaknik i ever really got to experience was like 97 and i i didn't like i was i was hustling so much i was like hustling t-shirts but this is during this is the freak nick era like this i'm yep. talking about like 94 so it was when freak nick was at its height and you know oddly enough we we drove down south and i was listening to southern playlist of cadillac music the whole ride so i fell in love with outcast very early on and when i was choosing colleges i actually wound up getting a, a academic scholarship to CAU to Clark Atlanta. And I had visited the school and like, you know, it just was like, yo, it was like, you know, it was, it was so many uh, young people of color, just like so many walks of life, you know, in this all in this one area called the AUC, the Atlanta University Center, which is compiled of like CAU, Spelman, Morehouse, Morris Brown at the time. And, you know, when I was picking schools or cities, I was like, you know, I I really I want a place where I can kind of do my thing. You know, like I never had been like a nine to five type of person. So, you know, I obviously was, you know, had already established a reputation minimal of of who DJ drama was. But like, you know, coming to school, you know, I I was I knew I was still going to be a DJ and I got to Atlanta. You know, I met um, uh, DJ Sense literally my first day, who is also from Philly. We were staying in the same dorm. I met Don Cannon um, a year later, who was also from Philly. I met my business partner, uh, Lake Show, who's originally from L.A., um, but he was going to Morehouse, and we met our freshman year. And, you know, just being in Atlanta, like being at Clark or in the AUC, it was like it was abundance of gigs because, you know, it was always – 
parties. Everybody was throwing parties and it was always work. And it, it really taught me how to be very well-rounded. You know, again, like you said, I'm I'm a very East Coast, you know, upbringing kid. Like I grew up like, you know, I was playing cool Keith, Dr. Octagon at parties wow. before I left for college. You know what I'm saying? And then I get to Atlanta and it's like, you know, I got kids, you got people from DC, you got kids from uh, Louisiana, you got kids from Texas, you got California, you got Miami and everybody loves their shit, you know? And, and, and I'm not going to lie. I was like a very stubborn East coast backpack hip hop head, you know, but when I'm doing these parties, like everybody, you know, the same way I loved what I loved. So did everyone from where they were from. And, you know, the South was like, you know, this is during the face and social death era and, and the dungeon family was coming up and then you know master p even though he's not from atlanta but he represented the south he was he was becoming very dominant and in my time in atlanta and in, in the mid late 90s it just it was becoming the epicenter of hip-hop like right in front of my eyes and you know even though i was still very central in like a college environment just being in the city you know i was i was watching atlanta become like the new mecca of hip-hop and you know, slowly becoming a part of it in, in my own way. So then you finished school and you just decided to just, you didn't want to come back up, up North. You know, I, I the, the only time I ever really came home after my freshman year of college, I came back to Philly for the summer. Again, even when I got out of school, I thought I would like move to New York and try to make my career there. Or I got a gig being a production assistant on Baby Boy right when I was out of college. So I went to L.A. for a little bit and I tried it out and I had gotten a gig in London, a DJ gig. It was my first time going overseas and I was working on Baby Boy at the time. And I, I told them, like, yo, I got to I got to leave for a minute. I, I was like a month in on, on working on the movie set. And I was like, I got to leave to go do this gig. And when I left to go do the gig, I was like, you know what, like me going back to the movies is kind of like me, me starting from step one and like having to like, you know, start from from ground zero to to build up. I've already established myself as a DJ. You know, I've already taken certain steps to get to a certain level at that time in my in my uh, career. I was like, it's not like I'm working as an intern at Dr. Dre studio. So I wound up deciding to come back to Atlanta. I actually, at that moment, found out that I was going to be a father for the first time. And so it was like, okay, these dreams of moving to New York, like that's done. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm here. And, and I think the fact that, you know, I realized I was going to have my first child really just kind of made me as much as of a hustle I already was. It was like, okay, yeah, like this can't just be a hobby. Like now you got to really take this shit seriously. And, you know, Atlanta was a great place to be, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was, you know, at every level I was able to like make a, a living for myself, you know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, I never really got a, a real job. I would, I would make all my own mixtapes and I would like go back to the AUC or I would go to Georgia state or to Emory or various schools or, you know, just kind of like hustle my mixtapes. And I was able to make a, a, a good living at that, you know, at that stage in my life. So then you start elevating the mixtape game. Talk a little bit about just the whole gangster grill movement and mixtape. How did that all begin? So basically, I, you know, when I was making mixtapes, I was making them 
in a space where I was kind of like a one man machine and I would like sell on myself. So I would always kind of have to have something for everybody. So I would have like a up North tape. I would have like a, even before it was a genre, I would have what was like now known as Neil soul a Neil soul tape. I would have like a reggae tape. I would, you know, I would have an old school tape and, you know, obviously being in the South, I had like a South tape and um, I made a couple before Gangsta Grills, like with the different couple names. The first one I ever made was called Jim Crow Laws. Then I think I made one called How the South Was Won. And then around like 2001, uh, Emperor Cersei, who was uh, doing six to 10 on what was Hot 97 at the time, which is now Hot 107.9, you know, offered me and sense of opportunity. He was going to he was going to pay for our booth at Birthday Bash, which is, which is the big concert in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like he just like kind of he was like he was going to front us the money and then, you know, get his back plus a little bit. And, you know, we would get whatever we made. Because he was down with Lil John back at that in that right. moment. Yep. He was down with Lil John. That's, yep. you know, that's how we met John originally uh, mm-hmm. at BME. So that's how I, I came up with Gangsta Grills, just kind of like, you know, toying around with words at the crib. And I was trying to think of a new title for uh, South Series and. I just was playing with words and I said gangster grills and sense was like, yeah, that's dope. Like run with it. So I made the first tape. We did birthday bash, like maybe like 30 feet from us was a big oomph stand with DJ jelly and, and Monte. And they blew us out like in every way possible. Like we made just enough money to give Cersei his money back. And like, Jelly and Monte and you know they had MC Assault at the time like they were just dominating the mixtape game in Atlanta in the South and they were just murdering us and then you know I was really paying attention to like mixtape culture up north and what was going on and I noticed that you know like people were starting to have like hosts on mixtapes um, and you know I was like alright yeah I need when I do another Gangsta Girls like I need to find a host and I asked Little John to host the tape and, you know, Little John is like one of the most down to earth, humble guys in the music business. And he was like, yeah, no, no problem. He came through the crib. I, I lived at in the fourth ward and he did the drops for me. And like he was my first host for Gangsta Grills. And then the next tape that I did, I didn't have a host. So I just ran his voice back. Hence how the, the Gangsta Grizzles drop was born. And I knew that in a sense, I was kind of creating a brand and you know i was i was always very keen into marketing and like you know paying attention to my product and you know gangster grills like solely but surely was becoming a thing and when i was like moving tapes around the city of atlanta and things like i've always been one to kind of like go against the grain and people would tell me like listen like when you make a, a, a south cd like niggas in the south don't want to hear a bunch of talking a bunch of exclusives and free New York in the like, New York type of mix. Yeah, they don't they don't want to hear that. Like that's not what they want to hear in the South. And Gangster Grills was exactly the opposite of what people were telling me they wanted to hear. Like I was taking an up north formula and applying it to Southern music. So I was playing exclusives. I was having Ti and Killer Mike and you know Phil Mob and all these artists come do freestyles. And I started like you know talking on the tapes and just totally going against the grain. And 
it caught on and it caught on like like hotcakes, like like wildfire. And next thing you know, like, you know, you were hearing gangster grills out of numerous cars, like just all over the city. And at the time I had uh made a uh a kinship, like a you know, a a a, a, a friendship with, with Jason Jeter and TI and Grand Hustle. And we were kind of like, you know, establishing a, a bond and a relationship. And they and were ascending at the moment at that moment too. They were. You know, Tip had put out a, his first album, which was not a commercial uh success, but in Atlanta, he had some records on there that were like big records like Dope Boys in the Trap, like uh Pussy Popper Number One. Um, and you know, they were putting out their own mixtapes and having some success. And then Jeter came to me with the idea of like, hey, how do you feel about maybe doing a Gangsta Grills, like just all T.I. and Grand Hustle? And I was like, hell yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I'm watching with, with, with 50 and Who Kid and what Green Lantern and Eminem are doing. And I'm like, all right, well, this is my real opportunity to make the type of tape that I want. So the Gangsta Grills meets T.I. PSC in the streets was the first Gangsta Grills as we know it today as like just a mixtape with like one artist or one click. And, you know, before that Gangsta Grills was just like, you know, a multitude of the hottest songs in the South. And then it became like, okay, here's this project. That's like a mini street album. And it's the only place you're going to get this music. So tip was on fire. Gangsta Grills was on fire. So when we collaborated, it was like the hottest thing in the streets. And then, you know, one of my neighbors was uh, a gentleman by the name of Coach K. And he came to me and was like, hey, I'm, I'm working with this this new artist out of Macon named Young Jeezy, you know, and, and we want to have a meeting with you and a sit down. And, you know, uh, Jeezy, I, I used to make show CDs for Jeezy for like $100. He would come to my crib and um, I would make him little show CDs. And, you know, he we, we had a meeting and he was like, yo, I, I don't know if you know, but like the streets really fuck with like your shit drum, like Meech buys all your shits on campus. Like I was at your party, like you, you know, you, you got, you got some real shit going on and here's my vision. Here's what I want to accomplish. And I want to do a tape with you. So that was the first time I ever got paid for a, a mixtape coach and Jeezy. They gave me a thousand dollars. And we did Streets is Watching, which is the first Jeezy tape. And, you know, I looked up and within a couple months, like it was the talk of the town. You know, it was the talk of the Southeast. And Coach invited me to go on the road with him. Like, yo, you got to you got to see this drama. Like, you got to see it for your own eyes. And, you know, because of Streets is Watching, it even escalated Gangsta Grills to a whole nother level because the DJs were forced to play my mixtapes in the club because that was the only place that Jeezy's music existed and it had gangster grill drops and it had my voice on there. So it just escalated it to a whole nother level. So then you become just this iconic mixtape DJ across the country. I mean, everybody's talking about gangster grill and then you get jammed up. Like, like you are literally about to release a, a, a real album, like on a real label with grand hustle and you get caught in a Rico case. What was that like for you in that in that time? Because you've never gotten in trouble. You've been a great kid. You like never had a problem with the law. Like no no problems growing up. And you think you're doing everything right. And then the feds show up at your house. They actually take the album that you the master of the album that you were going to put out. And this was that 
that wave of crackdowns that I guess the record companies went through the feds to stop all the mixtapes because people weren't buying albums. They were buying mixtapes. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, you know, like at that time I was top of the food chain, like when it came to like mixtapes and mixtape DJs. So like, you know, first, first the, the fact that I was getting locked up, I never saw that coming, you know, and then I felt a lot of guilt in a lot of ways because that was when the mixtape game like changed as we know it. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people looked at it like, damn, if drama, they're going to lock drama up, like nobody's safe. You know what I'm saying? Because I was doing like sanctioned projects. I was working directly with artists and with the labels, you know, and, and, um, you know, I spent, I spent a day in jail, but, you know, it was like, it was big news. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was, it was, it's hip hop history uh, now. But, you know, in hindsight, like, they made me more famous than I was at the they time. Did. Yeah. And, you know, they put me in the history books faster than I was already on my way to going. And Atlantic Records called and was like, oh, my God, we can't pay for this type of publicity. How fast can you turn the album in? You know, so I lost a lot of money. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with, with what the Rico was. So when I got out, I went and checked my bank account and, you know, an account that I had six figures in went from six figures to 0.00. So that that was kind of crushing. And also that's a mob thing too. So it's like, you are so far from that energy. You're not killing nobody. You're not selling no drugs. You're not like doing, you know, running people across state lines. And that's like the mob law. Like that Rico was a mob. That's a mob thing, bro. Yeah, real shit. Yeah, they, they they made me into a gangster. It was kind of cool, actually. Yeah, um, gangster grill. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, I was a college kid, and yeah. you know, uh, mm-hmm. the streets loved me even more. You know, so again, like the guilt I felt, like this culture that I came up and grew up loving, like I can't watch it die on my back. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, I, it was it was like I can't be the end of the mixtapes. Like, I, you know, like. What a that's that's not what I got into the game for. So, you know, I continued to do mixtapes, and you know, it was like even when I would do interviews and things, it was like, look, this is just one chapter in my story. Like, this is not the end all be all. This is not the final chapter. Like, when it's all said and done, this is just going to be one part of my story. You know, lo and behold, I had no idea what the future held for me and where where I was to go and what I was to accomplish. But, you know, just knowing my 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 drive and my um my personality, like, you know, I knew that like, yeah, like I'm it's 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 up from here, you know. So I mean they gave me a, a storyline for my album in a sense and I became a martyr, you know, in a lot of ways for for uh for mixtape culture, for hip hop. Like, you know, I say on my album, on my, on the song I have with Outkast, like I took the fall for hip hop and I stand in front of you stronger than ever. So then you really become engaged with labels and, and really get on the A&R side of, uh, of the music business. And so talk a little bit about that journey and, and just starting to cultivate new artists and projects, but more in a formal label setting. So, you know, a lot of it kind of came organically for me. I had been, uh, working on my own albums and putting out music. And, you know, I started to have some real success with records. You know, I put put a record out called Oh My. That was probably at the time, like, my biggest record. And then I 
put this record out called My Moment, when I did this, this album called Quality Street Music. I was on E1 at the time, but I was still using a lot of the the people that I worked with at Atlantic, like to do independent work for me, one of those being Sam Crespo. And Sam Crespo came to me and was like, yo, like I should bring up to Kaiser, Craig and Julie, who are, you know, the the big dogs at Atlantic, you know, the idea about you being an A&R, like, you know, you're putting together some really good records, you know what I'm saying? Like you might have a future in this. And I was like, yeah, I'm that like, yeah, like set it up. So I had a meeting with Kaiser and, and, and Craig and, and I think Julie was there too, you know, just about me coming back in A&R fashion. And I also told them, Hey, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm building this studio in Atlanta called mean street studios. It might be, an opportunity for you guys to partner with and, you know, have like a Atlanta hub. And, um, you know, when I did my deal, part of my deal was uh, for them to become partners with me at Mean Street Studios and to help me finish building out the the facility. And yeah, so I came on as an A&R and my first year and a half was a little rough, you know, trying to find my footing and you know, my, my style of a and and, you know, they, they were trying to put me with a couple of different artists that I just like kind of, you know, wasn't, it wasn't really fitting for me. So I was on the verge of, of literally getting fired. They were looking at it like, yo, why are we paying DJ drama, you know, all this money? Why are we putting all this money into the studio? What, what results are we getting? And Craig, you know, based upon our extensive history, was like, listen, Drum, I believe in you. You know, I don't want to let you go. Let's do a year deal. You know, at the time, I had just told them I had found this kid in Philly named Little Uzi Vert. And they were like, look, we'll just let you focus on Little Uzi. You know, we'll be partners in Mean Streets and we'll see how the next year goes. And, you know, what a year it was. I was uh, smart enough to, instead of just signing Uzi directly to, Atlantic, me, Cannon, and Lake had started our label generation now, and we signed him, you know, as the production company um, to Atlantic through Generation Now. So our first artist was Little Uzi, and the rest is history for that. We put out, you know, I took him on tour with me during, I went on the Wiz Khalifa Fall Out Boy tour. He was coming to all my gigs, and we were, you know, we were just like, you know, really, that was, we were promoting Vert. And we put out a project Halloween 2015 called Love is Rage. And the shit just took off like hotcakes. And, you know, next thing you know, like little Uzi Vert is 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 the talk of, of the kids and, you know, the new wave and, you know, where hip hop was going. And this is this was at a time when when streaming was really becoming like the main outlet for music and we were fortunate enough to have an artist that was a streaming artist based upon his youthfulness and how the youth were you know uh getting their music and yeah you know we 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 had some major success with uzi and and then around this time too mean streets was becoming the hub for you know everything culturally popping in atlanta so you know you would catch you know the who's who of hip hop at the studio at, at any time. So what Atlantic was at one time questioning, why are we paying all this money? You know, sometime later they were like, oh yeah, we don't want to miss out on this opportunity to re-up. And I told them like, hey, listen, I don't do this alone. I have partners that, you know, it's a 
three-headed monster over here. And I was like, if you guys don't come on board with them, they're going to wind up getting jobs somewhere else. So I convinced them to, you know, do a joint venture with Generation Now and, you know, myself in Cannon and Lake. So my positioning as an A&R changed to, you know, us uh, being partners with Atlantic through Generation Now. And one of our first signees when we did the joint venture was Jack Harlow. And, you know, we, I, I always say like Mean Street Studios was like built off my back. Then we, when we did the joint venture, we built a new studio, Generation Now, which was built off Uzi's back. And then when we opened the building up in t- December 2019, Jack went in there with Jetson, made a couple records, and one of those records turned out to be what's popping. Yeah. And then Jack Harlow, massive, massive, massive success. What did you see in him early on that you that you knew that he was going to pop? I liked how um, comfortable in his own skin he was. Um, you know, he was this, this like, kind of, I don't want to disrespect him. He gave me Napoleon Dynamite Bobs at first. He does. Yeah, he does have that. You know, like, yeah. early on. And, you know, he, he, he wasn't the heartthrob that he is now. You know what I'm saying? But he could always spit. You know, he was very in tune with where he wanted to go. You know, I could tell he was a kid that studied hip hop. We bonded just on like our interests in film and movies. And he put this record out called Dark Knight and, you know, kind of forced our hand. We're like, you know, just on the, on the ramen side of things was like, yo, this, this kid got something like, you know, and, it, and we knew it was going to take some work. You know, I, I know it's like, Again, him being a white rapper, like, and it's not 1999 anymore. You know, there's, there is a, obviously a landscape where, you know, white artists can exist in hip hop, but it's still not the easiest thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't necessarily create cool around them. But, you know, I always, I always liked that Jack was like, he never tried to be anything that he wasn't. You know what I'm saying? He was always very witty, very quick on his toes early on. And like, you know, he just like, we created a real like a real friendship and bond very early on and in a similar way to what like Uzi and Cannon were was what me and Jack were, you know, and we yeah. we put out a, a few projects and like we didn't have the massive success that we wound up having with with what's popping. But he still was was able to create his own like fan base where he could go on tour and do like 200, 300, 400 cap rooms and you know he was he was building up some momentum so by the time what's popping hit it wasn't like necessarily well to the world maybe but it was for he had a a fan base that it he it didn't just come out of nowhere you know what i'm saying so they were they were growing with him and and following him and the rooms just got bigger and bigger and bigger yeah well listen man a year that he has had and the success i mean you know when you get a record that is a timeless record that like he'll live off of that record for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Like, and it was great. All of the collabos that you guys did on all of the different award shows and just the way that you use that moment. That is again, your history, knowing the history. I'm sure you were very instrumental in that. I want to thank you, man, for stopping through, man. The backstory podcast, I always find, you know, your story very inspiring and fascinating. I don't think a lot of people know this much about you, but 
you know, like I'm just proud to say that, you know, we're from the same city, from the same neighborhood, and we saw what was happening in our circumstances, and we chose music, entertainment, media to just, you know, focus ourselves and look where it took us, man. That energy helped us raise kids, put food on the table, like live a life. And uh, I'm always forever humbled by hip hop, like you being a kid, just watching it and then being able to eat off of it, like, and do it for real, man. That's just such a blessing. I mean, listen, man, I won a Grammy this year off a mixtape series that I started 22 years ago, just playing with words and kudos to Tyler Creator for his genius and to having me a part of Call Me If You Get Lost. And, you know, it's been like 2022 and the last, really the last year and a half have has almost been probably like one of my biggest moments. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm in a space right now where Gangsta Grills is as hot as it ever was, you know, it's like a resurgence. It's, a, it's, it's a nostalgia to it. You know, my label is thriving, you know, like Uzi is back out here with, I just want to rock. Jack is on fire. You know, uh, I have another artist, Seti Hendrix, who, you know, we're building and, you know, he's doing some amazing things and it, it feels incredible. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just to be here after 30 years of DJing or after 20 years in the business and to, to feel as vibrant or as relevant and, and ever is like, you know, I tell people like I live and breathe by this culture. You know what I mean? I, I love it. And like, just to piggyback off what you said, like, you know, to be able to provide for my family and to see the world and to, you know, to, to live a, to live the life that I live off of hip hop is like, it's the American dream. You couldn't ask for anything more. And yeah. like, Hip hop is turning fifty, and you know I've I've been I've been DJing for thirty of those years, so it's like I've been here, you know, more than half of of its inception. You know what I'm saying? You know, when I think back about my humble beginnings, like you know, would I be here if there wasn't a Kobe Cole and a Radioactive, and you know, a ten year old, eleven year old, twelve year old Tyree Simmons that wasn't DJ drama yet, you know, running to the radio every Friday night to make sure I heard everything that was hot and that, you know, listening to you growing up, like, you know, it's a, it's like the, the way people come to me and, and give me my flowers and, and say, like, I became a DJ because of you, or I wanted to do a mixtape because of you or anything. It's like, I'm here because of the path that you paved, Kobe. Oh, I appreciate that, man. And I, and listen, Again, you know, what an amazing career you have. And I, I can't wait to see what's next. And every time I watched Jack Carlo this year, I saw him hosting Saturday Night Live. I said, that's my guy drama. Like, that's how deep in the culture we get, right? Like, we just start something and then it becomes something so massive. And uh, I wish you a lot of success, man. Proud of you. And keep it going, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. DJ Drama. Thank you, man. New album on the way. I'm really like that. It's coming soon, soon, soon. Top of 2023, my sixth studio album. I'm very excited to put this project out. The work continues. Generation now forever. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, Patrice Russian. I didn't know for a long time that right. I, I Want to Be Your Lover was supposed to be directed uh, towards me. I had no idea. We were the kinds of friends who had a mutual love for the music, mm -hmm. a mutual respect for each other's abilities. And mm -hmm. we didn't talk all the time, but when we did, it seemed to be at pivotal moments. 
The Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.